Take your Bible and open it to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, please. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The New Testament epistles or letters are laid out by author. Uh, they begin with Romans, which was Paul's biggest and uh, earliest, or one of his earliest, excuse me. First and Second Corinthians, then you've got Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, then you get to First and Second Thessalonians. Two letters written to one church in Thessalonica. We launched a series a few weeks ago, and if you've not been able to attend all of the services, I'd encourage you to go online and catch up. All of the messages are available through the app, the Grace Community Church app, as well as uh, through our website. Because if you've missed any of them, I want you to be able to keep up as we continue to unfold God's plan for the end. Now, many of you have commented as to the relevance of a series like this, because having gone through the last 18 months, we all know how many people are questioning the end. I have been asked, Pastor Mike, does the Bible say anything about COVID-19? Pastor Mike, what does the Bible say about end times? This has always been the case, by the way, church. Every time there is catastrophic disaster on the world stage, every time there is a rise and fall economically among national leaders, uh, nations around the globe, people have questioned, is this the end? It ought be of great comfort to you, church, knowing that God has already written it out. He's already planned it out. He's already written down how everything ends. People want to know, how will the world end? Are we nearing the end of the world? Well, thankfully, because ours is a sovereign God, he's written it down for us. Now, I use that term quite often. God is a sovereign God. Let me make sure you understand what that means. That means that our God is a God who's in complete and total control. Ours is a God who keeps the universe functioning properly. Ours is a God who holds the planet, the very atmosphere, together. Ours is a God that causes a nation to rise and another to fall. Ours is a God who brings a leader to power and causes another to decline. That's because ours is a sovereign, sovereign God. Multiple times over throughout the Gospels when Jesus was with us, he promised his second coming. He said, I will leave you, but I promise I will return. The people who heard him make that promise assumed that it could happen at any moment. The Bible, especially the Gospels and the very words of Jesus, are filled with promises of his second advent. And oh, by the way, church, as many promises as there are in your Old Testament concerning his first advent, there are many more times, many more over, uh, there are many more times the promises in the Old and New Testament concerning his second advent. Uh, let me make sure that's clear. As often as we hear in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah, the coming Savior, the coming King, there are many, many more times over that many promises in both Old and New Testaments concerning his second coming. The promised king was going to return. Jesus made that clear. In fact, following the resurrection, Jesus spent 40 days with his closest followers. The Bible says that he appeared to thousands of people, over 500 at one time. People saw the resurrected Christ, and they all assumed, for the most part, 
that he was about to set up the coming kingdom he had described early on. They assumed it was going to happen at any moment. However, according to Acts chapter 1, when he ascended into heaven, they realized it's not happening now. When they watched Jesus ascend to the Father, they knew intuitively, well, I guess the kingdom will come later. But all of them assumed it would happen during their lifetime. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 11, two angels appeared as Jesus ascended and they said, this same Jesus, this same Jesus bodily, personally, visibly, this same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back the same way, personally, bodily, visibly. He will return the way you've seen him go into heaven. So along with the promises of Jesus himself that he would return, coupled with statements like this, that led hundreds and thousands of eyewitnesses to the resurrection in the first century to believe it was going to happen during their lifetime. It was going to happen at any moment. That is why when you read in Acts chapter 4, the church was so quick to relinquish their holdings and possessions. They gave away their land. They sold their holdings. They gave away their houses, their, land, their property, their wealth. They were willing to do so because why do I need all of these possessions if Jesus is going to return at any moment? Last time from Matthew chapter 24, here's what we learned. That a close examination of biblical prophecy reveals that Christ's return actually happens in two stages, the rapture and the glorious appearing. Now, I tried to make this clear as best I could. I want to make sure you get this before we go any further. When we read about or Jesus speaks about or a New Testament author writes concerning the return of Jesus Christ, he's actually referring to one of two stages involving the return of Jesus Christ, the rapture or the glorious appearing. Sometimes the Bible will address the return of Jesus Christ as one event, as if it were all to happen simultaneously. Other times it, it references each stage separately with distinction and purpose. A great example of this is Christmas. When we talk about Christmas, we can either be talking about the holiday, December 25th, the one day on the calendar where we celebrate the birth of Christ, or we could be talking about the days surrounding the holiday, the weeks even surrounding the Christmas season. If you say, we're going to have the best Christmas ever, you could be talking about the day, but most likely you're talking about the days surrounding. A family says, this is going to be the best Christmas ever. All the ladies are going to get together. We're all going to go shopping. We're going to bake cookies. Uh, we're going to wrap presents. The men are going to go play golf. They're going to do some hunting in the morning. Now, that's probably not all happening on December 25th, right? That's happening in the days surrounding the holiday season as people travel from out of town and they gather in your home. The same is true concerning the return of Jesus Christ. Sometimes the New Testament directs the comments to the event as if it were one, and sometimes it directs the comments to each individual stage of the return of Jesus Christ. From Matthew chapter 24, Jesus identified both of those stages, the rapture, and the glorious appearing. Remember, from Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said there will be no signs that precede the rapture. There's nothing going to give it away. Nobody's going to know what hit them. No one's going to see it coming. Remember, Matthew chapter 24, somewhere around verse 38, Jesus said, it'll be like it was in the days of Noah. People will be eating and drinking and throwing parties and giving in marriage and receiving in marriage. 
And then in verse 42, he says, two men will be in a field and one will be taken, the other will be left behind. This is a reference to the rapture, the first stage of Christ's return. Then he talks about the signs that are accompanying or preceding the glorious appearing. There are many signs that precede the glorious appearing. The glorious appearing will follow, according to Jesus, a time of great distress in the world. We would call it the great tribulation. Jesus said there will be signs in the stars, in the sun, in the moon. Wars will erupt. Nations will rise against nations. He's talking about the signs that point to the glorious appearing. However, there were no signs that precede the rapture. Now, one of the reasons that people make mistakes when they try and study biblical prophecy is because they make one faulty assumption. They assume that everything that is directed toward Israel is also good for the church. In other words, many Bible scholars, many churched people assume that Israel and the church are one and the same in your Bible, and they are not. Don't make the assumption of assuming assuming what's good for Israel is also good for the church. Remember, there's one giant distinction between the New Testament church and the nation of Israel. The New Testament church embraced authentic faith in Jesus Christ as king, and Israel rejected Jesus Christ as king. So, follow me. Sometimes the Bible directs its comments, writes its letter, makes its statement toward Israel and the glorious appearing primarily, and other times toward the church and the rapture. Think about your New Testament. There are four Gospels, and in those four Gospels, Jesus primarily, when he talks about his return, he's talking about the glorious appearing. Why? Because his disciples were Jews. The Pharisees were Jews. He was in Jerusalem. He was in Israel. So generally in the Gospels, when Jesus talks about his second coming, his return, he's speaking to Jews about God's plan for the Jews, which primarily involves the glorious appearing. But then what follows in your New Testament are a whole series of letters written not to Jews, but to churches. And churches had embraced faith in Jesus Christ. That's why the New Testament epistles, the New Testament letters, focus more so on the rapture because God has separate plans for Israel and the church. You've got to remember that going in. The New Testament authors were writing toward to churches that were filled with followers of Jesus Christ. That's why they focus more so on the rapture than the glorious appearing as did Jesus. These were churches that were made up of both Jews and Gentiles, but one thing they had in common was they had embraced faith in Jesus Christ. Christ's followers in Thessalonica were confused because like most other first century followers of Jesus, they assumed that his return was going to happen during their lifetime. But guess what? Their loved ones were dying. Their parents died. Their grandparents died. Some of the eyewitnesses who saw Jesus Christ alive post-resurrection were also dying. And so they were confused. They were wondering, Are followers of Jesus who've already died at some sort of disadvantage when Christ returns? I mean, it'd be much better to be alive, I'm sure, when Jesus returns than it would be to already be in the grave. Paul answers their confusion. He calms their fears by giving them a crash course in this, the rapture. The rapture, R-A-P-T-U-R-E. Uh, Let me ask you this question first. 
Where are the dead in Christ? That's what everybody wanted to know. If I'm waiting for the return of Christ to happen in my lifetime, and my loved ones are dying in front of me, well, where did they go? Where are they? Have you ever considered this? When we say in a funeral, the funeral of our loved one, hey, we have hope because we will see them again. How do we know that? Where do we find that? It comes from our text today. Question, where are the dead in Christ? Now, obviously, we know where their bodies lie. We're asking, where are their spirits? Where are their identities? Remember, Jesus told the thief on the cross in Luke chapter 23, the thief said, Jesus, I believe you are who you claim to be. The thief made a statement of faith on behalf of Jesus. What did Jesus say? Today you will be with me where? In paradise. Ten chapters earlier in Luke chapter 13, Jesus tells the story of a rich man and a beggar named Lazarus. Lazarus died and went to Abraham in paradise. The Apostle Paul, over and over in his New Testament letters, makes it crystal clear the dead who die in Christ, that means they die as followers of Jesus, they die with faith in Jesus Christ, they are with Christ. Look, church, Paul went so far as to say, I'd rather be with Christ. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8. Paul said, I would prefer to be away from the body, that's death, and be at home with the Lord. Nevertheless, for your sake, the church's sake, I'm here. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21, you know what Paul wrote? Paul said, to me, life is about Jesus primarily, and to die, well, that's gain. It only gets better from here. The dead in Christ, according to your Bible, are with Christ. They're not in some sort of soul sleep. They're not in some sort of star chamber. They are with Christ. Their bodies are in the ground, but their spirits, their identities are with Christ. That's why they recognize one another. That's why we know one another in heaven. That's why the, the thief would know who Jesus was, and Jesus would know who the thief was, because when we die, a Christ follower dies, their spirit separates from their body, but their spirit retains some of the characteristics of their physical body. That's why we'll know one another in heaven. That's why Lazarus knew who Abraham was. That's why when I get to heaven, I'm going to know who my mom is. That's why you're going to know who your relatives are. We miss them, but church, hear me, they do not miss us. As much as we miss those who've gone before us, please go ahead and bank this. They don't miss us, and they wouldn't come back even if they could. At this point, however, they're still incomplete. Their body is separate from their spirit. Our text today re reveals that it's at the rapture that they're then reunited with a glorified body. At the rapture, according to what we're about to read, God reunites their spirit with a glorified body. Paul calls it imperishable. It's immortal in 1 Corinthians 15. The apostle Peter uses the very same terminology. This church, the church at Thessalonica, they knew about Christ's promised return, but they wondered how that was going to affect their loved ones who had already died. Paul answers their question by teaching them about the rapture. There it is, R-A-P-T-U-R-E, the rapture. Now, you may know that the word rapture does not appear in your English New Testament, 
But the rapture is, however, a thoroughly biblical concept. In the Latin translation of your Bible, it's called the Vulgate, V-U-L-G-A-T-E, the Vulgate. The word is rapturo, rapturo. The derivative, of course, of our English word rapture. It means caught up. If you're raptured in something, you're caught up in it. The words caught up are exactly the words that Paul uses in verse 17 of our text. We'll read it in just a moment. Begin reading with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13. Paul writes, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. Now, hang on. Brothers and sisters refers to brothers and sisters in Christ. This is not a passage that is aimed at Israel or Jews. This is a passage that is aimed at followers of Jesus Christ, Paul's brothers and sisters in the faith. We don't want you to be ignorant or uninformed about those who sleep in death. The Bible often uses this terminology because sleep assumes an awakening. When someone is asleep, we assume they're going to wake up eventually. Okay? When we die, the Bible always assumes that there will be an awakening. That awakening takes place. It happens at the rapture. You're going to see that in a moment. Keep reading. Verse 14. Or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Why, why do we have such hope when we lose people we love? Because ours is the only faith on planet earth in the history of mankind that worships a risen Savior. There is no other Savior, no other moral teacher, religious leader, who was dead on Friday and alive on Sunday. The Bible says that Jesus' resurrection was the first of many more to come. The New Testament calls it the first fruit of resurrection. Jesus showed us the way. Jesus proved it could be done. Jesus demonstrated that death is not the end. You can be dead on Friday, but you can be alive on Sunday. There will be billions more resurrections to follow the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our text reveals that occurs at the rapture. Keep reading. Verse 14, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus all those who have fallen asleep in him. When we sleep in Jesus, we die as a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what he's describing here. The awakening happens at the rapture. Verse 15. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Remember the question. Are those who have already died at some sort of disadvantage when Christ returns? The answer is no, according to verse 15. Because those of us who are alive, we're not going to precede those. We're not going to go before those. We're not going to leave them behind. No. Watch. Uh, left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep, according to verse 15. Here's what I know from this passage, primarily verse 14. Number one, jot this down in your mind. Jesus will return with believers who've died. When Jesus returns at the rapture, all of the followers of Christ will return with him, God will bring with Jesus, verse 14, those who have fallen asleep in him. That means that my dear mother and my beloved grandfather and, and my father-in-law and my mother-in-law will return with Christ. I will see them again. When we say, have hope, we'll see them again. We're not talking about 
a thousand years into the future in, the, in heaven, we're talking about when the rapture occurs. That's the moment I'm going to be reunited with my loved ones because Jesus is going to re return with the believers who've died in him. Look at verse 16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God. Here it comes. And the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead followers of Jesus Christ are going to rise first before anything ever happens to me or to you as a follower of Christ who is alive at the return of Christ. The dead in Christ will rise first. Jesus spoke of this resurrection on more than one occasion in the Gospels. Uh, in John chapter 5 and verse 28, here's what Jesus said. He said, do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. That's resurrection. Those who have done what is good will rise to live. Those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, there's coming a day, we now know it's the rapture, when those who are in the ground will come out. They will be resurrected. And those who have done good, that means those who have embraced authentic faith in Jesus Christ, they will rise to live. And later, those who are, have done evil will rise to be judged. Here's what we know from verse 16. We know that dead believers receive new bodies. The dead in Christ rise first. Dead believers receive new bodies. Dead followers of Jesus Christ are at no disadvantage when Christ returns. In fact, they rise first. Their spirits, their identities are reunited with eternal bodies. Paul calls these bodies glorified. He calls them imperishable. He calls them immortal in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And it happens in a split second. I mean, imagine for a moment. No more pain. No more dementia. No more arthritis. No more suffering. No more crippling disability. None whatsoever. Glorified, eternal bodies, because the dead in Christ rise first. Now, look at verse 17. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together. There's that word rapturo. We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Notice, we rise to meet him in the air, unlike the glorious appearing when we return with him prior to the 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ. Here's number three. Number three, living believers will be transformed. What do we know from this passage? It's very simple. We know that when Christ returns... He will bring with him the dead in Christ. All of our loved ones who were followers of Jesus will return with him. We know that the dead will be raised instantaneously into a glorified body which will be united with their spirit. And we also know that living believers are going to be transformed. In another letter to another church, it's uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul talks about this change. He uses a Greek word from which we get our word metamorphosis. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 50, Paul writes, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the imperishable inherit, excuse me, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Look, I love how practical the Bible can be. Sometimes the Bible will answer questions that we don't even think to ask. 
Look, if I had a golden ticket and I could give it to you, and the moment you left this service, you would be taken straight to heaven, would you want to go? Not in this body. I don't want to live forever in this body. I don't want to live forever with these limitations. Paul said, the perishable, and that's what I am. My body is breaking down with time. I uh, had a wedding last night, married a couple of 25-year-olds, and they're laughing and dancing and carrying on. We're having a good time. And, and uh, I, I leaned over and I said, look, you need to live it up now. Because let me tell you something, chump. 55 is a long, long way from 25. <laughs> and I've been told not to get too excited about 65. See, if I could go to God right now, I wouldn't want to go like this. Because my body wouldn't hold up. That's what Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 15. The perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. Something has to change. Watch. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. We'll not all die. But we will be changed. There's the word metamorphosis. Our bodies will change. They'll go from perishable to imperishable. They'll go from mortal to immortal in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. What's he referring to? He's referring to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 17, we will be transformed. Remember, we began with verse 13. Verse 13 says, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who've died so that you don't grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. The rapture should be a teaching that provides hope. The hope that we claim as followers of Christ, it literally explodes from the descriptions of the rapture of the church. We should take heart. We should be encouraged. We when we lose someone we love, Paul says plainly, you shouldn't grieve like other people who don't have hope because you do. And it's real. And it's explained in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The last verse is verse 18, the last verse of the section. Therefore, encourage one another, Paul said with these words. Literally, take courage. Take courage with these words. Take heart. Allow them to strengthen you. Stand on this promise, the hope we claim as followers of Christ, ought to make us victorious over sin, death, and the grave. We shouldn't live anxious of our own mortality. We should take these words to heart. We should never fear the beginning of the end. There's no reason to fear it. We should refuse to cling to this one morbid, mortal, frail existence that we have. If COVID-19 has taught me anything. It's taught me that in the United States of America, Americans fear death far more than they should. We fear death far more than we should. According to this passage and others like it, following the rapture, following my own death, it's nothing but excellent after that. In fact, here's the summary, and with this I'll quit. Everything that follows the rapture is excellent for the follower of Jesus Christ. Think about this for a minute. My mother lived for five years with dementia, scared to death she was one day going to forget my name or forget my sister's name. No more dementia. No more suffering. No more 
stress, no more worry, no more pain, no more anxiety, no more fear, no more insecurity, no more doubt, no more anger, no more jealousy, no more disappointment, no more broken hearts, no more failure, and no more rejection, just to name a few. My broken body will be transformed as I meet Jesus and all of my loved ones who've gone before. That's what Paul says. And that is going to be excellent. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the clarity of your word. Thank you that death is nothing we should fear. Thank you for the privilege of living life with enthusiasm because we know we need not fear our end. Thank you for the promise that you've given us, the clarity with which you give it. May it impact each one of us as we live today, tomorrow, and the days after. May we live in anticipation and hope of that glorious day when we will see your son, Jesus Christ, for the first time. We pray it in his name. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. I hope you have a great week. I will see you next time.